0: About a half hour into our conversation with our guest, Mike McLeod, just as he was talking about the importance of listening to the fears on both sides of the debates, all hell broke loose, virtually and literally. An anonymous voice suddenly broke in with these words, the only words that I'll repeat. Hey, you want to know our fears? It's those... Followed by a slew of racial slurs and streams of threats in the chat box. Before we knew it, the conversation was hijacked. Zoom bombed. Derailed by a group who were clearly threatened by the ideas being shared. I managed to shut it down. Professor McLeod resumed. But needless to say, the conversation wasn't quite the same after that. As you listen to the conversation between Daniel and Michael McLeod on when principles and politics collide and the landscape of this post-Trump world, I hope that you keep that moment in the forefront of your mind, a moment that we did not anticipate and yet define so much of the borders that we walk today. After the recorded episode, some stuck around to process what happened one person suggesting maybe we should reconsider hosting these conversations if we can't assure it's going to be safe. I pondered that for a moment. The idea of safe space. When the reality is our racialized brothers and sisters have to endure this in public spaces every day, there is no safe space for these conversations. And it leads to a second thought. If creating safe spaces is not the purpose of these conversations, then we need to focus on creating people of courage who can stay engaged, stay in the tension of the discomfort, confidently speak truth about our humanity, and be willing to walk the journey of racial reconciliation. I hope this conversation as you listen today motivates you to join us as Border Walkers.
1: So Dr. McLeod, Dr. Michael McLeod, when Lance and I first envisioned this project of border walkers, we knew that one of the most challenging cultural borders to cross in these days is politics. And in a sense, that's always been the case, right? The old adage, we don't talk about religion or politics. But speaking for myself, and I, I don't know if everybody in the room shares my my Views on politics. So I'm not going to assume that. But I know that for me and at least in the last five or six years, it's become an even more surmountable border, insurmountable border. It's it's one thing to debate, for example, the policies of, I don't know, say Obama and Mitt Romney. Like I can, I can debate that. But I feel like since Trump, since the era of Trump, whether in Canada or Alberta or in the States, it feels like we've crossed an ethical line. So, for me, anyways, if I have a friend, for example, who supports Donald Trump, um, I feel like it's not just a matter of disagreeing with them, it's that I can't quite trust their ethics, their sense of, of what they agree in the world. And I'm sure they think the same thing about me for supporting, say, Joe Biden. Um, and so, That's kind of why we wanted to talk to you about this uh, because you have spent, you're a professor of political science at St. Mary's. You've spent decades thinking about politics, learning about politics, talking about politics. You're Canadian, but you've spent a lot of time in the States. And I wanna ask you, when you look at the landscape right now, the political right and the political left, what are the principles that are underlying this clash in politics? So to reference the title of the conversation, when principles and politics collide. What do you see as the principles that are colliding?
2: Well, thank you, Daniel, and, and thank you, Lance, to both of you for inviting me here today. Um, I think the conversation that we're going to have is an incredibly important one. And um, I hope and pray for those listening or and or watching that um that that you feel like you're a participant in the process is it's not just me uh talking yes i'm a professor and we tend to use our we tend to talk all the time uh especially in the classroom and and we we go on uh too much <laughs> we're often too, too too verbose um but um you know at the same time i i think the best professors are those who listen as well as they talk um, who engage with their students. In a, in a humble and, and, um, and forthcoming uh, uh, manner. Daniel, I think the best way to, to, to answer your question is to think about you know, who am I and where did I come from? And it's interesting, my, my background is somebody, um, yes, I'm a professor right now of politics at St. Mary's. I've been that for six years. Um, and prior to that, I taught uh, for another five, six years in Oregon. But I've been teaching, full-time, but I've been teaching uh, political science courses for almost 20 years, both in Canada and the United States. But I'm, I'm not defined by being, um, you know, just a, a political scientist. Uh, my father was in the military. His father was in the military, fought at, at Dieppe and D-Day in World War II. My mother grew up in extreme poverty in eastern New Brunswick. And for those, if there's any Americans listening, Eastern New Brunswick is, you might as well call it Appalachia. It's the, it's, it's the same, um, it, the, the, the similarity is, is there. I was the first in my family to go beyond high school. Um, and so, you know, I've experienced the power of education to transform a life. For, so For those of you listening who have one or maybe taking one degree right now, or you've taken a degree before, or you have two or three, I think you understand what I mean when you talk, when I talk about the power of education to transform, I often think about that as being the solution. If, if I could just get everybody I know who doesn't have an education to be educated, then everything would be fine, right? Education is the level or education is the, is the answer. Um, but in fact, um, there are different forms, as I've gotten older, I've appreciated the fact that there are different forms of education. Um, just because you go to university doesn't mean that you know more than other people. My best friend lives in, in Kingston, Ontario, and he was the manager of a clothing store. He never went to university, tried community college for a year, um, and, um, and, and managed a clothing store for many years, and now he works at a car detailing service, right? But, but I love him, and I trust him, and he's like a brother to me. Um, and, uh, with respect to, to that divide in my own family, for example, I have a brother who, who was a prison guard and who it's difficult to follow him on Facebook because all he posts are, are things about that are pro-Trump and, um, and, and, uh, things that are antithetical are very different from me. I was having a conversation with my mother who's in her mid, late seventies, uh, conversation with her a month ago and she swore no damn way I'm getting the vaccine you know I'm not getting shot I'm fine don't, don't don't worry about it so like you Daniel I've experienced conversations with in within family and 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 with friends um that seem to indicate that there's a divide in in society and so uh, you know we're, we're in a precarious position we uh, politics is now seen as a battleground. And um, for those who, who, I mean, politics is a place where ideas are contested, where policies are contested. That's what I teach, that's what I've been taught. But there's been something that's been going on the past five, 10, 15 years. It, it preceded Trump, but Trump magnified it. And what is that? It, it is that it's not, politics is no longer just a battleground of ideas and policies it's about it's a battlefield in which the threat is so real that um that the other side must be killed <laughs> the other side represents death um, i was listening to i i may i may drop some favorite authors or thinkers here but in our conversation but there is a um a catholic priest in the united states james martin is his name and i was listening to a podcast of his um, the other day, and he was our podcast that he was on, and he was talking about the fact that, um, you know, uh, the, he was talking about the insurrection that occurred on on January the sixth, and he was talking about um, things that have been happening in in the U.S. And there is this um, sense that the divide is so profound and so real that uh, each side sees each other as representing death. Um, there are the the Sunday before the insurrection took place on January the sixth, um, uh, ministers and churches in the United States, Catholic and Protestant, um, were were talking about this being a battle to the death and and a battle for the soul of the United States that the other side represented death, um, and because they were pro-choice or because they believed in something different than than you did, so this this battle of, of, of principles and principles are, are about truths and they're about uh, morality, um, about what's right and wrong. And um, they are now colliding with politics more and more because politics has become, uh, and politics has always been about a battle. It's been about power. But um, what we're seeing now is this 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 this, this collide. Between, between people whose values and whose truths and morality should should enable them to love the other side. And as a person of faith myself, I, I, I'm always interested in bridging gaps and, and, and listening and talking um, and not castigating others as representing evil. So um, those are just some of my thoughts uh, to, to lay that out. I mean, I, I, I think I answered your question, but if you want to follow up from from that, I'd be happy to.
1: Yeah, that's good, and it's almost like what you're saying in a sense is when you're having this conversation with somebody who is on the other side of what mm-hmm. you think is is death, right? Remember that they're thinking the opposite of you. Like remember, remember that that place of fear and that mm. place of chaos, right? That's coming from that. Um, I'm thinking back even to you and I were both in our previous Border Walkers conversation with Marco, he talks about the ego, the ego of the artist and how mm. we're trained as artists to have egos. I think that's true of politics. We're trained mm-hmm. in, when it comes to politics to have egos and to push yes. that and, and to, to put that aside is one way to, um, to do that. Now you're training in politics then. You mentioned the yeah. years you spent studying it. How does mm-hmm. that help you see what's happening right now? Like if you in terms of these these contrasting views, and, and in mm-hmm. Canada, in the states, in Alberta, what would you identify as being what's driving that fear? Why would you say that the fear of death, the fear yeah. of the other, is so extreme? Just to lay that out for for both sides, to kind of give us a playing field. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, as a political scientist, I'm I'm trained to to understand political phenomena from thirty five thousand feet, and and to to look at structures. And systems, and to be able be able to identify um, realities that people don't think about on a day to day basis. And so, you know, I I have been um, looking at um, systems and and trying to understand, you know, where are we at now? <laughs> how did we get here? And and how does my training give me the ability to to zero in on some of these phenomena? Um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be the only one to point out that you know where we're at now includes um, you know we live in a very low trust environment right now we have there is deep skepticism and resentment of elites of experts of expertise there's a great book that came out a couple of years ago called the death of expertise by Tom Nichols, I would I would recommend that. Um, the, the resentments and skepticism of elites though is in part, the, I, I, I believe it's due to some of these longer term phenomena and longer term realities that, that have um, really manifest themselves in the past decade or two, particularly since the, the for the United States, particularly since the 2008 economic uh, recession, But but even before that and after that in different countries um, around the world. So in in terms of, you know, what does my training tell me and and what do I look at? Well, I look at, you know, the the economic uh, realities. Um, We lived in in what political scientists call a neoliberal uh, environment uh, for the past 30 years and 30 to 40 years in which there was lots of restructuring going on. Um, that, on the one hand, um, was powerful enough to stimulate new economic growth, but on the other hand, created new and exacerbated inequality, economic inequality amongst uh, classes. And, and in Canada, and it's much much more so in the United States than it is in Canada, but it still exists in Canada, um, and, and in Europe, and most advanced industrialized economies, the inequality... Um, has become exacerbated to the point where you have, you have educated elites who, in the United States, they live on the coasts or in, in major urban areas in between, but, um, and in Canada, likewise, they live in cities versus rural urban areas. Um, but, but the gap between people who it is believed, it is perceived by people without education or people who feel on the outside that um there are others who have power others who are more advantaged uh than than we are so there there is an economic restructuring that has taken place that has we're we're bearing fruit as it were of this um of this economic restructuring uh, another one that that is important to understand is this economic restructuring took place when technological change was ramping up and so um the the advancement of technology in the past 20 to 30 years, those of us who are old enough to to recall uh, the days without the internet, the days without personal computers, the days without social media. Um, And this is the other thing that, that if you take on the economic changes that have taken place, that have resulted in these structural changes, if you add on technological change, um, and again, technological change has been constant throughout history. We just happen to be thrown in, in, in a time when if you combine the technological change along with the other things that are going on, we live both in an increasingly globalized world yet also in a very localized world too. You've got both things um, happening and, and the, the tremendous pace of that change is disorienting. And that's probably the third factor that I think I have thought a lot about is um, the social upheaval that, that has occurred um, that is occurring. Um, you know, Canada and the United States and, and Western Europe and Australia and New Zealand are places of where mass migration, immigration has taken place, both historically, but the amount of immigration that has occurred in the past 10, 20, 30 years and the disruption to people's lives, the perceived disruption, um, given the fact that these other changes are taking place, all of these things combine. And and i would I think I mentioned social media, but of course social media and the ability to be, we are the, we are the best, um, how, what's the best way to describe you this? We are the best informed people on earth. It, 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 we are the best people, best informed people in history uh, that have ever lived. That doesn't mean, informa- it, being informed doesn't mean intelligent, right? Being informed means we have more, I have more power at my disposal, intellectual power in this phone than the astronauts who went to the moon do. They just they they have I have more computing power in my smartphone than they did. Um, and so all of these things together, they're both empowering, but at the same time disorienting. And we live in a we live in a disorienting time. And those of us who are older um, it 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 is you know it gives us the the envy as a political scientist, both being older and a political scientist it gives me the ability to stand up there at 35,000 feet and go, wow, this is a, and some people call this a crisis. It, it, it is a cry. I, I believe that we're living in a, a, a crisis time. Uh, uh, some people call it a democratic recession. You look across the world, um, You know, there are profound um, anti-liberal and anti-democratic movements and, and uh, changes going on that really should give us pause.
1: I find that helpful, just knowing that big picture of, mm-hmm. of the sources of fear, the sources of tension. Yeah. As you're talking yeah. about social media, I couldn't help but think about how uh, one of the side effects of social media is you see everybody's political view more than you see the people themselves. And so mm-hmm. I now know mm-hmm. what my friends and relatives, and they know what, what I think about these very contentious issues much more yeah. than I know what they're what they're like to be around and and I find that when I have and I think the pandemic you know we're we're isolated for a good reason right now, but I think that that's almost made it worse because you've had these really the the pace of change that you describe is faster because of these huge sociological and and health and racial and economic and political upheaval that, that we've gone through in the last year. And yet we're only able to interact with other people about that on this very public facing, knowledge-based medium. Whereas normally I'd have those conversations with my friend and my family and their little kids will be on my lap, right? <laughs> or or right. eating my
2: food, right? And, and, and that's different. I, I was thinking of the word de- dehumanization um, as we're talking, because the, you add all of these things onto the COVID pandemic, and you're talking about a time when humans might, might think that they're connecting and, and with others, but they're really not. Um, I, I, I've been fortunate enough to be on sabbatical for the past year, so I haven't had to teach as much as my colleagues do, but if there's one thing that I know from talking to colleagues, and I did this last, um, Uh, April, May, June, as well. um, Having a class over Zoom or having these conversations over media, um, while while technologically fascinating because we couldn't have done this 20 years ago, um, so it does enable us to connect with one another, it's not the same thing as being in the classroom. Um, You're not able to sit with your niece on your lap. You're not able to connect with human beings. I'm not able to say to my brother, Let's have a beer and connect. Let's go out and talk. Um, I'm not able to make those human connections, and and social media is this wonderfully deceptive um, tool that, on the one hand, gives us the ability to connect with humans anywhere in an instant, find out what they're thinking, but profoundly distance. I, I mean, there's a distance. There's a almost a, almost a too safe distance between ourselves as we're communicating that way. So um, yeah, no, you're absolutely right.
1: Yeah, and the word you use, dehumanizing, does apply to Mm. that because you're only seeing a certain sliver, as we say at St. Mm. Mary's, the university, we're mind, body, and spirit together, but we're only seeing the mind and even a certain part of the mind, the the vocalizing, a knowledge side of the mind, not the rest of that. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is helpful. And and I'm thinking of other questions I wanna ask. Um, I'm thinking about, I wanna ask our guests that are here in the room with us to just start thinking of some questions to ask because in a few minutes I'll turn it over um, to to share that conversation. But I wonder if just briefly, um, you kind of give maybe you know five minutes per side. Could you just, from a broad perspective, the left and the right right now? What are, would you say are the main the fears of the left and the fears of the right? So because I mean I could articulate the fears of the mm. left when I'm talking to my right wing friends, but what are, what are they worried about me? This university student who's being corrupted by people like you? What, could you articulate those <laughs> those two quite broadly?
2: Well, I've I've obviously done a poor job at corrupting you. I mean, or maybe I have done a great job of corrupting you. I don't know. Um, well, you know that's a great that's a great question, and and I'm going to answer it by talking about how how do how do I understand and, and how do I um, um, engage with people who are both similar and different than me? Um, I mean, it, I'll, the the it is it is almost one hundred percent true that the vast majority of political scientists and professors who work at universities are what shall we say more progressive. Um, they they have similar views, which probably line up off center of of the uh, of the most of the population, right? Uh, the median terms of views of, of people um, who who don't work at, at universities, and um, that makes me a little bit sad. Um, it doesn't. It it it. it um, I, I try to avoid hubris uh, at all costs. So I, I take it very seriously when I think that my views, I, by nature, I'm a contrarian, and I'm also a critic because I'm a political scientist. So I always want to be different than anybody else anyway. But at the same time, in, in order to, for me to understand what people are thinking, how do I do this, right? How do, I, how do I humble myself, but how do I connect with others? And your question, the way I was thinking of answering your question was, you know, I'm I'm relatively proud of the fact that um, I try to read as much uh, information and as much about the views of people who are quite different than I am as possible. <clears throat> um, and that is, you know, really <clears throat> necessarily easy to do. Um, and uh, but on the other hand, we we do have we're in an information rich environment, so. Um, I can read, I can go to National Review, um, which is a political, uh, a politics site that is quite uh, conservative, but I also go to Breitbart and I go to, I try to find out what, what, what are the views and, and the interests and the, um, the engagement of, of, of people on the right. Um, I'm also, you know, I, 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 um, I have friends who have written for First Things, which is a conservative Catholic, um, uh, uh, media, you know, information place um, I- I based in the United States. And um, I, I find their views to be quite different than, than my own. But at the same time, you know, my journey has included coming out of, um, well, actually coming out of being very familiar with, um, you know, uh, conservative views, um, faith-based uh, views, evangelical views, and I'm quite familiar with um, where those people are coming from. And, and to your question specifically, I, I, you know, there is a fear uh, on the right that the, the changes that are underway in society, the social changes, especially um are are too dramatically hey i have a question quick and too dramatic uh you know i mean that, we that have direction. good fears because the um the mexicans yeah i have a negrophobia in... the mexicans have want to be... hear a, <laughs> a, a lot of uh, women with their taco Daniel, are you kisses. hearing different views here
1: yeah i'm hearing a bunch here. lance can yeah, you, yeah, can yeah, you yeah, mute yeah. those you know
2: what, you know what?
0: Okay. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. My apologies to that, everybody. I know that's very unsettling. I think it is also exactly why we have these conversations, precisely because we live in a, uh, a world where many people are angry mm-hmm. and don't know how to express themselves in a way that's constructive, and that's exactly what we're trying yeah. to do here. So, Professor McLeod, if, if you need to take a moment and, and uh, sort of catch your breath, if anybody needs to do that, uh, come back, uh, to come back in, then by all means uh, do so. That, uh, that's never, it's never a good experience when you feel a, a space we're trying to create is in, invaded like that. But uh, I think we're okay. We have control of all the, we have control of the conversation again. So, you're good to go. Thanks, Professor.
2: Yeah, no problem at all. And listen, you know, I've been teaching for 20 years. I haven't had quite those things happen in class, but I've had enough disruption and enough um, fights, <laughs> you know, in class to, to, in different courses to, um, you know, these things happen. So I appreciate it. Thank you. I don't know if I answered Daniel's, qu- I'm trying to remember, Daniel, did I answer your question or I can't, I can't, I can't quite remember. I think I did in terms of, oh, well, I, I was going to say um, uh, listening to, to others is important, right? Going, trying to figure out, um, trying to humble yourself, you know, we, there are 7.87 billion people in the world today, you know, humble yourself to think that you're, you're just one of those people. And, and me as a political scientist, I, I try to engage for, uh, you know, from people from different perspectives. Now there are extreme perspectives. We heard some of those <laughs> extreme perspectives being voiced. Today, but um, you know, I I, I think it's incredibly important to to recognize um, that there are people who see, um, you know, the quickness of of social change and and the economic um, disenfranchisement disenfranchisement that they or their families have felt um, as being real and as being substantive. I think um, you know uh, some of you have read J.D. Vance, uh, an author in the United States. His his book, which has now become a Netflix series called "Hillbilly Elegy," he wrote this book uh, on the advice of his his mentor and his professor. He started as an as an essay that he wrote for a law class at Yale University, and his professor Amy Chua who has written a, a great book called Political Tribes, which just came out a couple of years ago. She read this essay and he said, yeah, you should develop this into a full book. And he did. And you know, this book is about his journey coming from Appalachia and coming from people whose, whose sense of fear and hopelessness um, is, 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 is profound. And um, I think the more that we can do to understand why are, so, why are people so fearful? right now. Why are they, why are they so angry? Is it just, are they pro-life and is that the source of their anger? Are they angry at, um, at, uh, you know, economic elites and, uh, and there's a lot of people, that, by the way, there are those on the left and the right that share this profound distrust of experts and expertise and, and elites. Um, I think you're going to find 20 to 30% of Americans and Canadians won't take the vaccine. And it's because they distrust scientists or they distrust corporations. Um, There are rumors galore in terms of, of, of what people think about, are this, is this vaccination really going to, you know, is it really a secret way for Bill Gates to implant a, a chip into our bloodstream so that, I mean, there's all sorts of these, 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 Rumors out there. I think you have to be careful about how you engage with them, but don't dehumanize the others in the middle of the process. Right. Um, We have progressives have gotten very good at dehumanizing and, and holding down people for having different views than their own, just as people on the extreme right have
1: and it's identifying that that same fear that's causing mm-hmm. me is for example, the example I, I gave at the beginning to yeah. react to a family member's political views is perhaps the same one that they have for, for me. Now I want to um, I want to open it up for questions, polite questions <laughs> that I'm assuming everyone in this room is ready to, are ready to ask. Um, and I know Lance had one in there too. I have some more questions that I want to ask you Michael um, mm-hmm. that relate to some of the topics you've raised already. But it looks like yeah. we have Jerry Turcott with a question. So what I'm going to say is, when you ask a question, if you're able to turn your uh, video on and just briefly introduce yourself, your name, where you're from, and then we'll ask the question. Um, Dr. Turcott, let's start with you. If we can unmute him, yes, good.
3: Yeah. Well, thank you so much, and uh, thank you, Daniel and Lance, for organizing this. But thank you especially, Michael, for for taking this. And I, I'm so very sorry uh, of the the Zoom hacking. I you know, we, we do so much work at the university to to prepare and prevent these. So it has been an interesting experience to actually experience one uh, firsthand. Mm-hmm. But in a way, it, it kind of anticipates my question because I've spent the day uh, with the Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities, so the big US organization that represents some 500 universities and I'm on their executive. And our opening forum uh, this morning was about race in the US. And one of the very interesting, um, Opening slides from the keynote speaker uh, was um, pointing out that the political divide is actually racial. And so the statistics, and I, I was hoping maybe you could comment a little bit about this because we haven't really talked about it in this, this, you know, the haves, the have nots, that kind of piece. But uh, the statistics that he was presenting are that over 87% of Black voters voted for Biden, uh, 80% of white uh, evangelicals voted for Trump. Um, 73% of Protestants in the U.S. voted for, um, for Trump, 66% of Latinos. And so there's a real racial divide in this political chasm in the U.S. And, and I know it, it's, it's here in Canada too, to maybe a different configuration, but, but we can't be naive to think it's not here as well. So I wonder if you could talk about that uh, as a different factor too, uh, which of course inflicts this in, in uh, and, and as you saw from the Zoom hack, uh, bombing, right? The, yeah. useful in another way, that kind of anger and simplicity um, about how race is positioned. Mm-hmm.
2: Thank you, thank you, Jerry. Thank you um, for asking that question. Yeah, I, 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 I'm a little bit fearful. And the way that I wanna answer the question is, you know, recognizing, and I think it's smart to recognize this is that as a white male someone who has grown up with a fair amount of, of, of privilege now it's not privilege based upon class I mean I grew up in in a very poor lower class environment um, but it also happened to be in that lower class environment that I saw attitudes towards race and towards others that that was very um, sometimes extreme and sometimes uh, uh, unhealthy um, that being said as I've progressed in my life and I've I've, I have, I've had the advantages of education and the advantages of, uh, advantages of mobility. Um, I've, I've been to many countries around the world. I've lived in Canada, the United States, and multiple places. And one thing that always confounded me, um, especially in the United States, was race and the racial divide. Um, you know, your question reminds me when I went to do my PhD 24 years ago, 23 years ago, I went. <coughs> Pardon me. I went to um, Washington, D.C. to do my PhD at George Washington University, which is actually right downtown, um, uh, D.C., only about four blocks from the White House. Um, and uh, I immediately noticed, being Canadian and being naive, I mean, I had known about the racial divide in the United States, but I did not know really how profound it was, and. I noticed as uh, you know, as one of 20 PhD students at the time, I noticed that, hey, did you guys notice that all of the people cleaning at the university and giving us food and everything else, they're all African-Americans and there's there's no whites. And here we all, uh, all the PhD students were white. And all the people who were working at the university, um, there were some in the faculty, but the faculty was largely white. And when I pointed this out, my American uh, colleagues, my Americans, we don't talk about it. we don't talk about it, and I was like, what do you mean you don't talk about it, I mean that it's an example of, of, uh, you know, a, a racial divide that they, and they said, yeah, but, you know, it's pretty, pretty contentious, um, and, and the truth is that um, this persists, right, it persists, and it manifests itself politically, it manifests itself um, in communities who have been hit harder by COVID, um, it manifests itself in, 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 in all sorts of ways um, in the United States. And the funny thing about the United States is it actually has a really, on the one hand, the racial divide has always been there. there you know Slavery is, is a key component of understanding American history, but it is also the place where profound thinkers, the founding fathers of the United States set up a profoundly liberal Profoundly democratic society in which individual liberties and 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 the ability to surpass some of those um, and surmount some of those divides uh, take place. Now, at the same time, they've never been surmounted without battles. Right, the United States fought a civil war. Um, hundreds of thousands of people died in that civil war, and the backlash against the results of that civil war result resulted in Jim Crow laws in the United States. Resulted in profound discrimination um, that had to be fought again on the streets in the 1950s and 60s. So, you know, um, the, you know, universities, Jerry, you mentioned this, the, you know, Catholic colleges and universities in the United States, but in fact all colleges and universities in Canada, in the United States, are trying to tackle this um, divide um, and, and the lack of diver- relative lack of diversity and the need to be inclusive. And you know, we're tackling it in all sorts of different ways. Perhaps some of the ways that we're tackling it will not work pan out in the long-term, but I think the recognition of the past, the recognition of the present um, and the willingness to have conversations. Um, and you know what, um, you know, the hack that we experienced and the words that were used and the, the, the hate that, that seemed to come out um, who knows? It could have been a 14-year-old who would doing it, it could be a 25-year-old, whoever it was, was giving voice to to hate. And I and, and so and extremism. So this is where we have to sort of double down in our on our um, double down in, in terms of our, our liberal democracy, double down in terms of ensuring individual liberty, but combating extremism and it is sometimes it's a, a, a taking like a fine needle with a fine thread um, and and tackling it. Other times it's like no, we have to we have to take this in a in a in a in a more serious way and and become more anti-racist and that this is where um, you know anti-racist initiatives in schools and, and education uh, is incredibly important. I'll just I'll just finish off by saying, um, you know. When we moved to Calgary six years ago, we had an almost three-year-old, and his best friend in, in when he was three, four, and five was a, a Muslim, non-white, young boy uh, who was the son of the, um, uh, of the woman who ran a daycare uh, uh, that he spent part of the day with. And, um, you know, my son grew up in a way that I didn't, and, and he has my son, I hope, has a degree of color blindness that makes him e- extremely perplexed uh, about this thing called racism. He wants to, well, well, why are people <laughs> treating other people of different color in a different way? So, you know, one of the simple solutions that I think about with respect to, to racism and, and racial extremes is education at a young age, um, as opposed to, it's, it's great to have it at universities overcoming some of these divides, but if we can teach young ones uh, about respecting others, regardless of their skin color, that would be a phenomenal, a phenomenal experience.
1: We'll get to Peter's question, but just by way of transition, yeah. Lance, your family background and your specialty in Canada, um, has you thinking a lot about race in Canada. Do you have a, a transition thought, a 30 second thought before we get to Peter's question about that question, especially the Canadian side of that question?
0: I, I'm actually been thinking about the chat box right now. Uh, I'll be honest with you. And I've been thinking about how, how we navigate that language and how vital it is that we are equipping people to understand their own, you know, so, so much of the work that we need to do is, is real about preparing people to be in these conversations and and to understand that their their own power in the compass allows them to shift the conversation differently. And this kind of microaggression happens all the time. uh, And it's kind of a good thing for us to experience right now, um, because it just impresses upon us why it is so important that... Um, Dr. Turcott's question is at the forefront um, of, of this conversation. Um, I, I was thinking just about, uh, you know, I was listening to P- Professor McLeod talk about the alienation of the working class is, is what I heard um, in, in particularly in the US, but in North America, and how the narrative uh, is shaped by this This narrative of competition against the immigrant labor identified by their visible racial minority status and so it's a it's just an inherent part of their sense of alienation that the enemy is the one who looks different. And so smart people tap into this to your point about education and uh, and, and they tap into this instinctive suspicion or lack of trust, as Professor McLeod talked about, of the other as being the real threat. And so it's um, it's not rational, but it's such a it's a, a subconscious part of our narrative today and um, and we're assaulted by it all the time. Uh, and so I, I, I appreciate Dr. Trucott bringing it forward and uh, and, and the fact that we're beginning to talk about it is such a great step, because when we can consciously change the narrative through intentional conversation, I, I, I think that's how we're going to see some transformation take place. Mm-hmm.
1: So, I and know, Lance, when I, you I, and I sat down.
0: I, I, only, I offer that not because I th- I'm not sure that it was really tangential or a good transition, but that was just my thought to your question.
1: No, thank you. And I, one of the things you and I, Lance, identified when we first sat down to start this initiative, we said, we need to talk about politics, and we need to talk about race. So that's a conversation we hope to have on Border Walkers in the future, more explicitly. But I, I'm glad that it's part of this conversation as well. Um, Peter, could you please introduce yourself and um, and give us your question?
4: Okay, perfect. Um, thank you, Dr. McLeod, always for your wisdom uh, and for Lance uh, and Daniel for organizing all this, and so I apologize for joining late, so perhaps if this was already addressed, um, forgive me. Um, but listening to you talk, Michael, um, and and others as well, um, Lance and Daniel, for me at least, you know, my methodological pedagogy is one of uh, Catholic social action, basic methodology of see, judge, act. So I think today we've identified the problem, we're able to see it concretely, we're sort of judging it, realizing there's some real tensions and problems here. So my question moves towards that third step, one of action. And so I've heard so far, Michael, before you were speaking about this idea of we need intentional conversation. And I agree with you 100% on that. My question is how to have those conversations, especially with those who seem reluctant to engage the other. You mentioned yourself, someone who makes intentional efforts to see the other perspective, either from the far left or the far right. Um, And I think that makes you exceedingly rare because vast majority of people tend to get their news filtered with an intentional bias. So they want that bias. So, I mean, you look at sort of mainstream media um, who claim to be unbiased, their ratings are dropping. It's the more groups like Fox News to the right or um, MSNBC on the left, People name their bias, and they want that bias. Um, So the challenge I see is, how do you try to have conversations with the other? Because any time you try to bring in an opposing viewpoint, it's quickly viewed with extreme suspicion, because it's not part of our echo chamber. So Mm -hmm. I'm looking for some practical suggestions, if you have any, of how do we help engage or start that conversation with those that seem most reluctant to have them?
2: Yeah, thank you. You know, that's a great question, Peter, and it's even more nefarious than that. It it, it would be easy to presume, well, it's because we, um, you know, people just uh, follow media and follow news uh, willingly. Uh, They choose Fox or they choose MSNBC and all that. But um, if you, if we know anything about social media, If you are on Twitter or Facebook, for example, which are the two most um, uh, dominant and and well-known forms of social media, there are sophisticated algorithms which they use to um, to give you what what they think you want to follow and listen to. Um, So uh, you are being uh, um, channeled into viewpoints similar to your own as opposed to the opposite, right? Um, you're not even being given. So there are, there are literally millions of people in this country and, and the United States and around the world who aren't making a choice to necessarily follow news uh, and events um, th- based upon you know, a perspective that they have. But, but there are algorithms that are doing this for them. So uh, it's even more difficult. And that actually makes it an extra challenge, right? Because there are some of us who um, get so frustrated with social media that we go? I'm just going to get off Twitter because I just find it too aggravating um, and and too annoying. And, and the same thing with, with with Facebook. But coming back to your point is, you know, how do we how do we bridge gaps? How do we practically? And you know, this is a this is this is where the rubber hits the road, and this is where uh, there is no no easy solution. I was listening to. A, um, a, 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 a talk by the, the woman I mentioned earlier, Amy Chua, C H U A, who wrote the book on political tribes, and are uh, called political tribes. And, and you know, tribalism um, is a feature of of most countries and 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 um, and and it, throughout human history. We we are humans are by nature we want to hang in, around in groups and with common identities. And it just so happens though, that we've, we've conquered this tendency to tribalize um, in, in Western inva- industrial advanced uh, countries with, with massive migration. We've been able to conquer to some extent, the tribalism and, and, and um, hanging around in groups of common identities by, by you know, mixing people together to become citizens first of a country. And then, yes, you can be Italian Canadian, but you know, you're going to run into many people who aren't Italian Canadian, but we're all Canadians, right? Um, to overcome though, what we're, we are living in a, an increasingly tribalized environment. We are living in a time because of social media, because of alienation and all those things that you mentioned, we are living in a time when it's actually almost seeming like it's reversing itself, right? We are we are, or we are becoming more like um, countries around the world who are often torn apart by by these tribes. So, I was listening to the the presentation by Amy Chu, and she Chu, and she was throwing out a lot of different ideas. She's hopeful and idealistic, partly because like her, and I have the same idealism and and hope that that she she does in the long run. Like Martin Luther King said, justice will prevail. Um, but you know she, she was bouncing off ideas and, and things that she'd heard about that young and, and older Americans are doing to overcome some of the polarization. Um, for example, she mentioned uh, there's a group in San Francisco, um, a couple of, of, of women in San Francisco um, realized that they had never, neither one of them had ever talked to a Trump voter after the election of 2016. So they created a new organization called Make America Dinner Again. And um, and make America dinner again is is um, the idea of inviting people who have, of different political persuasions of yourself to come over for dinner, to have dinner with people who voted differently than 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 yourself, and and it's small very that seems very small and very um, uh, minuscule in terms of the progress that it could make. But I honestly think you know each one of us has been given gifts, right? Um, and um uh <laughs> to overcome fear you you have to and this is where my my faith to, i mean my, my faith tells me perfect love casts out all fear right um and uh and but we are living in an environment and this is a father james martin quote where perfect fear seems to be casting out love right and to overcome that fear uh means humbling yourself means listening to others who have different viewpoints than yourself, it, it, it requires work. Um, and, and yet that type of work is, is done by, you know, people who are motivated to change. Um, and, and I'm speaking right now in a, in a province, um, in, in, a, in a locality, in a province that is, is, has been undergoing crisis for a number of years. In a number of different facets economic and and political change and as i said crisis um there's no reason why um you know people can't uh i'm interested in bridging gaps and i'm interested in listening to others so i i think it is um you know finding a way through uh people who are motivated to change find someone else who's who's of a different political perspective from your own but just as interested in bridging that gap maybe that's a practical Uh, solution? I don't know. I know that most of my mandate is to create a learning environment with students so that they can listen to each other. People of different persuasions in the classroom can start talking uh, 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 with each other as opposed to past each other. So Mm. It's
1: helpful too because even just the way you phrase it vocationally, like the dinner, the classroom, what is something that's a vocational gift that you have and what is the community that you have that you can you can do that and then the other thing i noticed from your answer is the spiritual component um which is Mm. and i think that goes back to our previous conversation with makoto fujimura that you can listen to on our podcast feed now where he says to be a good artist you have to put your ego aside and to be a good bridge builder or border walker you have to put your ego aside and that takes a spiritual change (laughs) in my own heart i I can't do that by myself (laughs) ultimately um and so i think there's a there's a spiritual component to that as well Um, I think we have time for one more question from the audience. And then there's a a, a few follow-up questions and then we'll wrap it up. Is there somebody who would like to? Oh yes, um, Jocelyn. um, I think you're gonna have to unmute her, Lance.
5: My question is very simple, actually. Uh, We talked about the people who are educated. We talked about the people who are right and left. We talked about all this. And one of the things we're forgetting to do is that anger comes from within, emotions Mm -hmm. come from within, and as anybody, anybody try to understand themselves first before we can we can go and try to understand others. Because as soon as we go and talk to someone that is not that is different than us, uh, I think we the ego's in the way, like you just said, the ego's in the way, and then we add to our frustration. So we add to. So if we're open to ourselves and we know we are, where we stand. Then talking to another one is not going to affect us any, because we're just going to accept them as they are. Ask them to give us more information as to who they are, and then maybe they'll find out that there's some there's some feedback in the, this that is valuable.
2: Yes, well, I you know I I think um, uh, the the um you start off with talking about you know knowing yourself and and humbling yourself and i i really i really truly believe that um it, it is hard to engage with others when you haven't truly engaged with yourself so i i think that if and what i mean by that is just knowing yourself right and trying to understand you know who am i what am i about what are my strengths and weaknesses do i have blind spots Um, and I, I, because of my advanced age, uh, because of the age and because of the journey I've walked, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with my, my, my blind spots and I'm willing to, to engage with them. Um, you know, there are, there are, you know, people, um, who truly seek to, and this is related to what Lance was mentioning. There, there are conversations and there are people. Who want to dehumanize others, um, and we live. And this comes back again to what what Dr. Shercott mentioned earlier. You know, one of the what I find about racism that's so nefarious, um, and and sexism has it's, it's nefarious in its own way too. But I, what I find about racism and the particular ways that it gets expressed, it is a form of dehumanization, right? It is a form of categorization that puts people. Of, of a different ethnicity, a different color, a different background than your own, it puts them in a box to be boxed away and, and, and put away as not quite as human as yourself. So I, I think that as, as important as it is to engage uh, with other people, uh, to be respectful, um, to be humble, um, I don't think that we want to allow extremism, extreme views, To um, seep in and and um, and and poison the well, uh, as it were. And 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 I know that that's you know that walks a very that that is a very difficult thing to do in a liberal society in which we we privilege freedom, freedom of speech and freedom uh, of religious expression, all sorts of freedoms. If we allow the extremists to have their own freedom, are we not going to you know risk? the 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 possibility in a time when social media and information is so easily spread that we can end up with instead of 2% of the population being like that we can end up with 12 or 18% that people might find themselves being sucked into qAnon conspiracies or sucked into you know racial uh, racialized thinking that you know that is a that is a risk and you know that is something we need um, we need flag bearers and we need uh, watchtower guards who will stand there and go, you know, this, this is a danger, red flag, uh, a red light flashing, so.
1: Can you give us an example of a conversation or, or a, a mode of being, you've kind of given it already, the curiosity, but can you give us an example of conversations you've had with those friends that have given you hope and, and what, maybe just summarize what strategies you have when, you, when you're in those conversations.
2: I look for commonalities. I look for common links. Um, you know, my best friend and I both like football, but he's a big Tom Brady fan, and I hate Tom Brady. So I'm going to be, you know, cheering for the Chiefs on on Sunday. And it, so what you're looking for in 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 conversations and uh, with people to to just to continue the friendship, or mm-hmm. to go beyond where you're from, is to look for things that you share look for, um, uh, you know, you both could be dog lovers. You both could be, I I know that there are people who even, even people who, who have views, which are quite extreme from my own and very different from my own. They love their dogs just as much as I love my own. Um, and so those types of sort of common links and common humanities are, are what I, what I look for in in um, in in humanizing people and humanizing conversations, um, I I don't I don't have a specific uh, uh, memory uh, of That's one right. re- that re- recently that was had, but as I said, it, it's not that difficult. In one sense, yeah. it's not that difficult to think of people as just people who have profoundly different, who may have different profoundly different political views than yourself. I will I will also say a a, a good strategy. I grew up with a father. Who uh, whose political views from my own were, you know, as extreme as uh, as as I could be as as could be. And there are times when you just have to be quiet. I mean, I think that being 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 uh, silence is a good thing to practice sometimes. And I think that um, I, I I tend to veer away from contentious issues and contentious conversations just as much as I want. there's a part of me that wants to dive right into them you know I'm a political scientist I've lived and breathed politics my entire life I'm not afraid to dive into the deep end and get or 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 run around in the muck right as a as a pig might do but uh I at the same time I know for the sake of for the sake of um humanity sometimes I just step back and don't get involved in those conversations Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Lance, I'm going to turn it to you um, to just, could you list again for us those four principles that you use in your work? And then I'll close with announcements. Um, I, think, I think it's good to be reminded of that.
0: Yeah, sure. You know, it, it speaks so much of, of um, even our experience today. Um, when when we, we talk about these conversations, it's so vital that we understand both mentally, emotionally, Spiritually, what we're being asked to do, and we can see even this moment that above all, uh, it takes courage to stay in the conversation. Um, I think one one of the misconceptions about about this work of being a border walker that Daniel and I are quickly appreciating, we're not entering into safe space. That that hinterland between the tribal boundaries is where a lot of these threats are being lived out every day, and it's so vital that we stay engaged, uh, that we expect discomfort because uh, it, it, that's precisely what the boundaries are all about. It's the place where these conflicts are happening at so many levels. It's also knowing ourselves and I really appreciate what Jocelyn uh, shared with us about knowing ourselves well enough to speak our truth. And by that is to know our own story and how our lived experiences shape um, our convictions and our values. And finally, the fourth thing is that we expect non-closure. Some of us feel very unsatisfied with how we got bombed in this this session today and that um, somehow they won I think we need to hold that intention. Uh, It goes back to something Professor McLeod, you said that I think is so important. Um, We need a long view in this. We need to look at the long arc of justice and recognize that this is a journey that's not going to be finished in this conversation, or the next conversation, or perhaps the conversation after that some of us, you, you keep referring to yourself as old, uh, uh, Professor McLeod. I guess I got to join you in that old guy's group. It may you not call
2: me Father McLeod if you want. Lance is fine. <laughs> yeah.
0: But it may not happen in our lifetime. But why do we persevere? Because we hope.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That's okay.
0: why we do it. We hope. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I, I think, again, you know, it's so fitting that we have those four agreements firmly before us in this work. Because uh, mm-hmm. we see it's it's not safe space we're inviting people into, but what we hope is that the conversation elicits courage, and um, and and I I'm grateful for for Professor McCloud giving us, I, I think that sense of courage about the conversation because you you've been walking it very quietly, but with I think a tremendous sense of of wisdom. So I'm grateful for that,
1: and I'm thankful for. Everyone who joined us, those who ask questions and those who just listen, because it gives me hope as well to know that we're doing this in conversation, we're doing this together. And this conversation has certainly given me a lot of things to challenge myself on, but also a lot of hope. And if you're like me and you need to listen to it again, it will be out as a podcast, just search Border Walkers and whatever podcast app you use. Um, And it usually comes out about a week once Lance and I get the edits done. You can also listen to our last conversation with Makoto Fujimura, which I've alluded to more than once. And then behind me, I'm trying this to see if this works at all. Um, You'll see details of our next conversation, which is um, with Marilyn McIntyre. And it's called, you can't see the top there. It's called um, Speaking Peace in a Climate of Conflict. And Marilyn McIntyre is, um, she, she taught literature courses for most of her life. And then she was the professor of medical humanities at Berkeley. Um, and so she herself is a border walker and going between language and science. Uh, but she's written a couple of really wise, excellent books on how to pursue speak, uh, pursue peace and pursue truth and beauty in our climate. So we're gonna be having her on February 19th um, at 6.30 PM. That's two Fridays from now. We really hope you can join us And again, thank you so much for coming here.